Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. We welcome onto the podcast this week, author Sally Vickers. Sally's first novel, Miss Garnet's Angel, was published in the year 2000. Since then, she's gone on to pen 11 novels in total, as well as collections of short stories. Previous to writing, she worked as a teacher and a psychoanalyst. Her storytelling has won her many fans and she's a Sunday Times bestseller. Her latest book, The Gardener, is a beautiful reflection on family, place, immigration and nature, and is now available in paperback. Sally Vickers, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Sally, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to sort of take us back to your childhood. Am I right in saying you were born in Liverpool, but you you grew up in Stoke-on-Trent, is is that correct? Yes, I was born in Liverpool because uh, my mother was a double amputee. She was bombed during the war. She thought actually she was going to die, uh, but in fact she was rescued in time, but her legs were burnt off. Uh, her pelvis was also very, very badly damaged, and she was told she shouldn't have children. And being the woman she was, a woman of indomitable courage, she researched until she found that she grew up in Liverpool. Her parents, she, yes. she was born in Liverpool. Her parents were, my grandparents were Liverpudlians, uh, born and bred. And she found in Liverpool a consultant uh, obstetrician and he was he actually turned out to be a rather famous obstetrician called professor jeffcott and it was 1948 and it was just as the national health service came into being so i was he he agreed to see her through the pregnancy and to deliver me and of course they didn't know whether i'd be a boy or a girl or if i'd be okay at all and mm. um, i was his first national health patient so I was rather sort of celebrated by him. So I stayed there with my mother and who was staying with her parents, of course. And then we went back to join my father, who was the warden of an adult education trade union college in Barliston, Stoke-on-Trent, near Stoke-on-Trent, in what was called the Wedgwood Memorial Hall. And we stayed there until... Dad lost his job because at that stage in his life, he was a communist and the college was jointly run by <clears throat> the Oxford Department for Continuing Education. It was for oh. trade union people who wanted to get an education. So people like electricians, plumbers, um, or, you know, from all walks of life came yes. and studied there. Uh, my father taught them history and literature. Bridget Hill, who went on to marry Christopher Hill, the famous Marxist historian um, also taught there. There were many, many good teachers there. But Dad, at that time, was an active communist, and he was sacked because it was thought he was using his position to present views that were antipathetic to the 
understandably, to the <laughs> Oxford University's um, idea about education. So he was uh, okay. And at that point, we moved to London and we lived with one of my several communist godparents. Okay, um, yes. And actually, that is the origin, really, of The Gardener, the book that I have most recently published, because she had the mm. most beautiful garden. And I suppose I remember my earliest memories of childhood were of my godmother's garden. Uh, she and her husband, both communists till the end of their lives, didn't have children. She was his second wife, so he had children, but she did not. And I was a sort of surrogate child. So that is in a, in a, in a very brief run through my childhood history, of a locational history. Mm. And there's so much interesting information there. It's it's always hard to know where to start in terms of um, uh, it, you know, if you as long as you don't mind me sort of asking some some follow up questions. Oh. I mean, cer certainly very interesting what you're saying about your about your mother and you being the sort of the first NHS baby, as it were. So you know, I, I suppose a, a great example of the work of the NHS in terms of you, you know, is there a possibility that had the NHS not existed, that your mother wouldn't have been able to, because I imagine it would have been quite expensive. You would have had to have gone yes. private. Yes. Pre yes they had no money. I mean, my parents had no money. My dad actually came from rather a rich upper class family, but he'd signed over all his money to his mother. Oh. Um, his father was killed in the First World War and he was supposed to inherit his father's wealth at the age of 21. But his mother, I think, understandably, thought he'd probably give it all to the Communist Party. So she got him to sign it over. And oh. she never gave him any money. I mean, actually, she was an odd woman and I was very fond of her. But there was no doubt. She very much disapproved of my parents' marriage because my mother was thought to be of too lower class. Right. About which, of course, he couldn't give a fig. So they didn't have any money. So it's quite possible I wouldn't have been born without the NHS. Mm. And I've always been a huge supporter of the NHS. You know, I'm part mm, of campaigns to support the NHS. I feel very mm. strongly that the NHS has suffered. I feel that Boris Johnson's claims that money would go to the NHS if Brexit happened have been proved lies. And I feel very strongly about that. And I've worked in the NHS during my time working as a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst. I did work in the NHS as well as privately. So yes, I have a long, long history of the NHS and I'm a huge supporter of it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And, and yes, yeah, as you said, from, from working in it as well. So quite a, a long and well-established yeah, history with the NHS, as we all do in the UK, you know, it, yes. it, it, it touches all of our lives and yes. you know, that's why it's, um, it's so important. So you're very interesting that your, yeah, your father then lost that job because he was a at that time a uh, committed communist and it sounds like from because you were saying you uh, sounds like you had a sort of army of uh communist godparents yes. quite a was it quite a close-knit community then i imagine it was you know everyone sort of understandably stuck together and, and moved in yes. the same circles yes i had a very large extended communist uh family you know um, not related by blood but related by principles and they were very important in my childhood. Johnny Gollan, who was then the secretary of the British Communist Party, 
his children, Heather and Andrew Gollan, are still very, very close friends. Oh, wonderful. Um, Martin Kettle, son of Professor Arnold Kettle, who remained a communist until the end of his life. Arnold was my godfather, and Martin Kettle, the journalist, and I have remained very close friends. Mm. Um, Betsy Giles and her husband, Giles was the surname, but he was Granville Courtney Trelawney Giles, one of those upper-class communists. Oh, wow. <laughs> ed- ed- educated at Eton, where Macmillan was his fag. Um, Betsy was my godmother. The other godmother I had was, um, I had two other godmothers, Bridget, married to Christopher Hill, the, histori- the Marxist historian, and Lily Marshall, who was the very working class uh, shop steward at the Wedgwood factory oh, okay. <laughs> and who was a lesbian and had a delightful partner called Mary. And I used to, after we moved from Stoke-on-Trent, used to go back to stay with them. And they slept together in the double bed and I used to go into their bed in the morning and snuggle up between them. So I was introduced very, very early to the idea of gay relationships, which to me seemed totally natural. <laughs> mm, yes. And actually, my uh, Arnold Kettle, although he was married and very happily married to Margot and fathered both Martin and Nikki, who remain my very good friends, he was also gay. And it was sort of accepted among us that, you know, Margot knew he was gay. He loved Margot. She loved him. He was a very, very good father. But, I mean, I suppose you'd say he was bisexual. Uh, Martin and I always think that he possibly had an affair with my mother at some point. We don't know. We like to think that. That's probably it's our speculation, is it? It's our romantic <laughs> side. So <laughs> what I'm saying to you is this, this community was not only incredibly liberal, and in many ways I would say very Christian without the God, it mm. was also amazingly forward-thinking about issues of sexuality and gender. Mm. It was also very, very philo-Semitic. It was very pro-Jewish, which is odd when you think, I mean, my parents left the Communist Party in 1956 after the Russians invaded Hungary. But my father was a prisoner of war for five years, and he was moved to a punishment camp with members of the Jewish Brigade, the Palestine Brigade, it was called. Right. He always said he tried to convert them to Marxism, and they tried to convert <laughs> Zionism, and they won. <laughs> so I grew up in a highly philo-Semitic community, highly... Um, liberal in terms of sexuality community. I mean, half the comrades had married people in order to bring them into the country. They all believed in free love. <laughs> 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 the only real taboo in my upbringing was religion. And people who've read my books will note there's a very strong strain of religious interest in my books. Yes. And my friend, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, mm. said to me once, you know, I said, he said, why are you so interested in religion, given that you were brought up as, as an atheist householder? And I said, well, it was precisely because it was a forbidden subject. And he said, hell, I wish I'd thought of that when I was bringing up my children. Rowan <laughs> has a marvellous sense of humour, which you don't get in his public statements. He's a very, very funny and very witty and ironic old guy. So my great interest in religion really arises out of the fact that it was the one book that was not on the shelves of my parents' copious bookshelves 
was the Bible. And when I got a scholarship to a rather posh girls' public school, um, a state scholarship paid for by the um, Labour government, actually, the one thing that my parents had to provide, because the state wouldn't provide it, was a Bible and a hymn book. And I remember my father (laughs) taking great exception to this. He never wanted me to go to the school at all. He thought he thought I should go to a state school. Uh, but my mother, who was rather ambitious, luckily, I think, persuaded him I should go. I mean, to get round to the subject of my writing, my interest in religion. I mean, in a sense, Miss Garnet's angel, she starts life as a communist in the book. Mm. And she's, if I say converted, I don't mean she's converted in a sense she becomes a church-going woman, but the religious paintings that she finds in the Chiesa dell'Angelo Raffaele of the story of Tobias and the angel, the story of Tobias who travels with an anonymous man who turns out to be the archangel Raphael. Through her interest in that painting, she loses her belief in Marxism and communism and comes into a love and understanding of what I will call a wider spiritual realm. Mm. And that's pretty much, there's no trace of Miss Garnet in me, except that in a sense that reproduces my own sense that in cutting out that dimension of life, Marxism and indeed atheism loses a great deal of what has always been very important, I think, to all civilizations and all human cultures. Mm. And I don't think it should be defined in a very narrow way by the church or the Church of England or, you know, particularities of Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or even Buddhism, which I admire very much. So in a sense, the most important thing about my upbringing was what it excluded, I think. And that is, it's it's always, um, it's so wonderful speaking to, you know, authors, I don't know, a theme you always come across, it must be true for all children is, you know, what they're told, oh, you know, that's, no, we don't, we don't do that, or we don't, you know, we yeah. don't think about that, yeah. always becomes a point of interest. It is, you know, yeah. a tale as old as time, but if you say, no, not that, then suddenly that becomes a an interest that, you know, even reflects, I, I was brought up not in an atheist household, but certainly in a household in which the church or religion, you know, wasn't something really discussed. It wasn't a big part of our lives, except for my grandmother, but that was always talked about in a slightly kind of, um, uh, oh, you know, we, do, we don't do that. We're, we're not into that. And yeah, certainly in my, my later teens and in my, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't assign to a particular church, but there's an interest in religion. I find religion and particularly religious art very beautiful, inspiring and, and, you know, and interesting. And yeah, it's still, you know, something I think I'll explore sort of throughout my, throughout my life. So I, I can empathize with that. Yeah. Yes. And actually, to be fair to my parents, although they were atheists, they were what I like to call cathedral going atheists. And they were, <laughs> my mother in particular was very, very interested in art and indeed music. Uh, my father was tone deaf, so he wasn't, but he was very interested in poetry. And he was a historian by, by training, although his, he worked, he finally worked as a trade union leader. Um, he was an intellectual, but his political sympathies made him move into that sphere of life as a profession. Mm. I mean, he remained a committed socialist all his life, and he was a Labour councillor. And I mean, both my parents must be spinning in their graves over the current government. 
But um, oh, I imagine yes. we always visited cathedrals. And I remember at nine, they took me to Chartres, which is the subject of the cleaner of Chartres, um, a book mm-hmm. a few years back. And I remember two things. One was being absolutely captivated by the labyrinth, which becomes very important in that novel, but also by the incredible beauty of the blue glass in the stained glass windows. And that's mm. thanks to them. They, they, they took me there. They always took me to cathedrals. They always took me to historical churches. There was no taboo about religious paintings or, or religious buildings. It was just God that they were against. Yes. And they never, they never although at the, my mother suffered from Alzheimer's, so unhappily she never read Miss Garnet's Angel. Although actually, I don't know that I could have written. It was my first novel. Mm. And I was 50. I was actually 48, but it was published when I was 50. I have a feeling I wouldn't have written had she not developed Alzheimer's because there was something about her constant focus and interest in me and on me that was an inhibition for me. Mm. And I think she was unable any longer to continue with this sort of over attentive and very critical attitude towards me. She was very critical of me as well as being rather taken up with me. That's when I first wrote to be published. I'd always written, but I kept it private. Okay. Probably to keep it away from her. But my dad read Miss Garnet's Angel and he absolutely loved it. Oh, wonderful. So I, I think, and you know, at the end of his life, after she died, I spent a lot of my time with him planning his funeral and almost the last thing he asked me to do was to buy him a hymn book. And the next time I came back to visit him, he'd chosen seven hymns for his funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Dad, I think that's a bit going over the top. Stick to three. And in the end, my brother and I only had two because we all had to have, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, which is a great ballad sung by Paul Robeson about a trade union, American trade union leader. So we actually oh. put it down to two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seven is quite, yeah, quite, uh, that, that's, uh, yes, that's a lot of singing, isn't it? That's a, uh, That would be quite. And he also asked for um, the church, the prayer book funeral service. And interestingly, Heather Gollum, the elder child of Johnny Gollum, General Secretary of the British Communist Party, is a Scottish minister. So like me, she was an apostate from atheism. And indeed, my elder son, Ben, is a Church of England vicar. So oh, okay. Oh, oh, wow. So, yes. The previous background has had produced a rather strong spiritual strain. Yes, yes, it really has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, um, I, I'm interested as well in um, you were saying that uh, you were sort of writing it when you were 48, but um, your first book was published, but, you know, when you were 50. So you would have, you know, you'd always written before that, but you'd had before that a career and that sort of aspect of your life, do, do you divide your life in some ways mentally between sort of, you know, before being an, uh, a published author and after, or do, do you not see it that way? Is it all sort of part of a, um, a, a general sort of journey? I've never really done anything deliberately. And my first job was actually teaching children with special needs uh, for the then um, now defunct LCC, 
I'm just trying to remember what it was called, which was a sort of, it was tutoring children who were either, as nowadays we'd say, excluded from school or had more often had some kind of either physical illness or some reason, some sort of psychological disturbance. And then I was a, a teacher in adult education. I worked for the, actually for the, the same Department of Continuing Education in Oxford. Oh, okay. Yes. My dad. <laughs> and I actually taught my room. I had a very large class. And my room was named after the very man who sat dad. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Which is quite funny. Uh, dad was very yes. by this. I mean, he, he, he was totally sympathetic to them sacking him because he'd by that changed you know, his attitude to the Communist Party. Right. Um, then I uh, taught as an actual um, tutor in English literature university tutor. Then I trained as a Jungian psychoanalyst. And I was still a Jungian psychoanalyst and a psychotherapist. I mean, a psychotherapist when I was working in the NHS, because obviously mm. they can't pay for analysis. Uh, an analyst when I was working in private practice. I, I, I did a lot of work with people who'd either attempted suicide or had some traumatic experience with death. And I actually did quite a lot of work with Early, in the early stages of work with people, with um, particularly men who had post-traumatic stress disorder. Ah, okay, yes. And I worked quite interestingly with some Vietnam um, veterans. That was interesting. But I also worked with the children of the children of Holocaust survivors, who very often didn't know the backgrounds of um, their grandparents, but nevertheless manifested, I mean, very typically eating disorders, which I found very mm. And I wrote Miss Garnet's Angel when I was still working in these sort of areas. And it was such a success that I, I hadn't really intended to particularly, you know, make a career as writing mm. with the book. And I was very, very lucky. I got a very, very good agent immediately uh, who sold it immediately. And it was a word of mouth bestseller, which was, you know, a, a, ma a magnificent stroke of luck, actually. And I do think luck is very important in a writer's career. There are many, many very fine writers who are not lucky in their lifetimes anyway. Sometimes they get mm. later. Yes. I always say, you know, it, it, it's, it's luck as much as talent. I think, I think there is a degree of talent. I hope I have a degree of talent, but I also think there's luck. But you see, because I was seeing people in a very intimate way, I began to see that I couldn't really go on writing about characters and their intimate lives because I realized although I have never done this and never would do it and have never taken any of my characters from life ever because I think taking from life is never as convincing actually as taking it from within your unconscious self I realized that they would be worrying all the time that I would use their material Right, yes. And although I certainly use my insights, my psychological insights in my writing a lot, it's never the case I've taken it from anyone's actual life or anyone's actual history ever. Yes. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that from an ethical point of view, but I wouldn't want to do that either. But I knew. Yeah. I also began to be, you know, used to, began to be articles about me and details about my private life would emerge. Now, that isn't terribly helpful necessarily. If you're a, a psychoanalyst, I didn't particularly mind people knowing details of my life, but they can mind. 
you know, they yes, yes. Knowing, for example, I went through a very horrible divorce. Well, that's not what people necessarily want to know about their analyst. <laughs> they start to feel sorry for you, or yes, whatever. And you know, you don't really. It, it's not helpful to them to be feeling sorry for you, if they. So that sort of thing began to emerge. Um, I had a very, very horrible divorce around the time of Miss Garnet's Angel because. The man I had married was very jealous of my success. Right. He was another writer who was not so successful as a writer, although he was rather famous in another dimension. So because Miss Garnet was a success, I took a gamble and decided to become a full-time writer. And the gamble just about paid off, although a writer's financial life is pretty dodgy. I mean, mm. I... I get reasonably good advances because I'm a reasonably good seller. I mean, three or four times been a Sunday Times bestseller. But I mean, I'm not a kind of, I'm not a J.K. Rowling or, a, you know, one of the really top bestsellers. Yes. And I've never won a literary prize, partly, I think, because of my subject matter, which a lot of people who've not read my books think, you know, I write about angels. And in this book... The Gardener, and you didn't mention it, and I'm going to be straight and mention it, has fairies in it. And I think people get the idea I'm whimsical. I'm not. The Archangel Raphael is not a whimsical angel. The fairies in my books are not whimsical fairies. But there's a kind of snobbish literary circle, I'm afraid, that looks down on that sort of subject. And also the fact that I'm thought of sometimes as a religious writer. There's a bit of sneering about that. And I mean, without wanting to blow my own trumpet, I think I'm an extremely literary writer with a strong philosophical interest. Mm. I read widely in philosophy and I review a lot of very high-minded um, philosophical mm. books. But I was actually in line to be on the shortlist the year Miss Garnet's Angel was published. Oh, okay. But I wasn't known. And at the time, one of the chair of the judges actually confided in me that actually um, I was shortlist because I wasn't known. Now, that's not nowadays, you know, it's better to not be known to be on the book of shortlist. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I've been a man booker judge. So I sort of know the procedure. But what I'm really saying is it's a precarious living I make. And, you know, sometimes my books sell very well, like Miss Garnet's Angel and The Cleaner of Shark from The Librarian. Sometimes they don't sell so well. Now, my best book, The Cousins, I think my best book, two of my best books, Where Three Roads Meet and Cousins, which I regard as my two best novels, didn't sell particularly well. So it's a precarious living, mm. but it's an incredibly enriching one. I mean, first of all, the process of writing is always exciting. I never know where I'm going with a book. Uh, the readers are wonderful. You know, I mean, I have wonderful readers. I've only once in my life ever had a nasty letter, which is amazing. And that's yes, who objected to the fact that I used God as one of my characters in Mr. Go Lightly's Holiday, and she thought it was blasphemous. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, by the way, that Rowan Williams likes very much. So Yes, okay, yeah. So. And various theologians like very much. So I think probably not blasphemous. But anyway, she was offended. My readers, correspondence with my readers is an absolute joy. And people often say, I'm sorry to bother you and I hope you don't mind me writing. And I always write back and say, 
look, there is nothing a writer likes more than to get a, a letter. Oh, absolutely, yes. We love it because it's lonely and arduous. And every time I start a book, I think I'm not going to be able to do this. Right, okay. Finishing a book, finishing The Gardener, which I loved writing. It was one of the books I, you know, some books are really hard to write. The Other Side of You, which I think is another of my best books, was really hard to write. The Gardener was a joy from start to finish. I wrote it during lockdown and I loved writing it. And I loved lockdown because it gave me privacy. I was in the country. I had long hours of wonderful, blissful solitude with no commitment, mm. no responsibilities. Uh, I live alone. Um, the only thing I missed was my wonderful grandchildren, who I adore and I'm very, very close to. And to a lesser extent, my dear sons, who I don't miss nearly as much as I miss my grandchildren. <laughs> my grandchildren are frankly nicer. Uh, <laughs> and they're much more beautiful being children. I love children. I get on really well with children, um, much less well with adults. So writing that was an absolute joy, but sometimes it can be hell. And, you know, like at the moment, I'm just thinking I'm not sure I can write this next book. It's too hard. and I Right, yes. Uh, it's nearly always very, very hard to begin with. It's sort of like driving through a street where there are a lot of sleeping policemen, you know, those bumps in the road. Mm. Uh, and you bump along and you bump along, and then you get to a point when it's suddenly on the top of a hill and you whiz downhill, and then it's wonderful because somehow the, the book takes over and it writes itself. But starting a book, I always think, oh, God, why aren't I doing something else? You know, can I get a job in Sainsbury's? Can I go and work in a local charity shop? Can I, I don't know, become a garden designer? Can I run an antique shop? Can I do anything? But do there must be some other way, yes. awful thing I've decided to do. Because although I know what, the, I always know the character. I always know the voice of the character. And I always know the setting, but I don't know what's going to happen. And I can't always find the words. Sometimes the words won't come at the beginning. I suppose it's like being constipated, although I never actually am constipated. I don't have that sort of digestion. Or it's like childbirth when you can't push the baby out. Yeah. It's very like childbirth because you forget the pain of childbirth. When you've had a baby, the joy and bliss of having a baby is so overwhelming, or was for me. But I remember the next time around when I was going into labour with my second child, I thought, oh, my God, I'd forgotten how painful this is. Why am I doing it? Yeah. <laughs> too late. Too late to stop. Um, so it's like that. And I'm at that stage at the moment. Right. It's out in the world with its beautiful cover. with a love. It had a wonderful hardback cover, which I chose the painting for. And then they let oh, me do the painting for the... The Edward Monk, rather an uncharacteristic Edward Monk of a woman picking tulips, which I absolutely adore. And they've done a lovely cover, which at first I thought was a bit glittery. But actually, people have persuaded me that the glitter is rather fetching. So I've come, I was a bit cross about the glitter at first because I thought it made it <laughs> a bit trivial. It's not a trivial book. Um, no. But um, Yes. Anyway, I'm rambled on a lot. Do you want to ask? No, me? no, no, not, 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 <laughs> not at all. It's no, it's, it's very interesting hearing you talk about. Again, I love seeing the the 
sort of, you know, the common aspects of when I'm speaking to different authors, you know, the things that sort of unite them. And uh, mm-hmm. certainly that initial start of a, of a novel always comes up as, you, you know, the, the terror of the kind of the blank page of, you know, getting the thing started and, and the pain involved is is something that seems to be a common theme with um, with authors. But one thing I, it's I really not really, It's not really the blank page, actually. It's this. It's in my head. I know that I hear the voice. I don't know what's going to happen to the character necessarily, but I hear them and I can see the place. It's getting it out of my head, down my arms, into my computer. That's mm. a block. It's yes. almost a physiological block, actually. It's not really even a mental block. When people talk about writer's block, I, I, it's not in my mind. I know I've got a, a very, very active imagination. I've got a lot of stories there, plenty waiting to be written. It's getting it down the arms and through the, yes. head, into the you know, that's the thing. I can't mm. always do that. And uh, that's the frustration. I suppose it's almost like a, an act of translation, you know, translating it from the, I don't know, the sort of the 3D aspect of the of the mind, which yes. is, you know, yes. Can, yes. can balance so many different things at once yes. and putting exactly. it in the... Ver- exactly. It's the many multidimensional quality of the imagination and the unconscious translating that that's very well put jack it's translating the multi-dimensional i'd say four-dimensional quality mm, of mm. the unconscious and the imagination into well the two dimensions of the page and i suppose the three dimensions of the story so it's more like a geometry mm. it's a it's a geometrical translation that's really well put thank you that's helped me understand it better I lived for a time with with the great mathematician Roger Penrose. We we had a quite a long and important relationship, and he was terribly interesting about four dimensional geometry. He's a lovely man. I'm, I rather stupidly left him. Um, one of the many great mistakes of my life. But he got me very, very. We had some wonderful conversations very late at night, and he was he got me very interested in four dimensional geometry. Ah. I spoke to him quite recently because somebody's writing about his biography and they wanted to talk to me about our relationship. And I said, well, I'll have to talk to Roger first to see if it's okay. So I rang him up and he said, well, I can't talk at the moment, ring me back. So I rang him back a few days later when I was actually waiting to see my physiotherapist in the car park. And he said, I can't talk to you right now because actually I've just won the Nobel Prize. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't you hear very often. <laughs> uh, what a wonderful uh, thing, you know, to be I told. I was in the shower when I heard I'd won the Nobel Prize and now you've just rung me up and I've got rather a lot of people I have to speak to, so I'll talk to yes. you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What an, yeah, what an amazing um, yes. reason not to be able to talk right now. Yes. <laughs> Oh, how fantastic. And one thing I'd be really interested to talk about is I've seen in other interviews or writing, I I was um, reading the segment on your website about writing The Gardener and and the talk about the the importance of place, because I'm I'm writing saying it's set in the Welsh marches. Yes. Um, And also the thing I, I found really interesting, and it relates to what you were saying earlier about the fairies in the book, is the uh, sort of pagan landscape of the UK of, yes. of, of this, um, you know, which I feel particularly when you go to certain parts of um, of the UK, yes. suddenly sort of reveals itself in a way that it doesn't everywhere. 
And I, I would just love to hear more about that because it's such a, a fascinating um, subject, really. Yes. Well, you know, I said I'm interested in religion, but it's not confined to Christianity, nor is it confined to Judaism or aspects of Islam in which I'm very interested, uh, particularly Sufism and Buddhism and Hinduism. I'm also very interested in the Greek gods, pretty well informed about them. Um, I mean, I read a bit of Greek, not, I mean, ancient Greek, um, mm. not terribly well, but um, I taught the ancient Greeks in translation a lot. And um, But I'm also very, very interested in, in the pagan Celtic uh, religions. And I really got interested in those uh, as a child, mostly through Rosemary Sutcliffe. She was one of my favourite children's authors, and I read a lot of Rosemary Sutcliffe. I mean, actually, she's pretty much an adult writer. I reread her Eagle of the Ninth trilogy quite recently, and I thought, gosh, this is this is this is adult writing. But she wrote a lot about Celtic Britain, and she wrote a lot about Roman Britain, but pre-Roman Britain, of course, it was Celtic Britain. And then when the Romans, and the Romans, of course, converted to Christianity with Constantine. So there was a bit of a sort of piecemeal conversion to Christianity in Roman Britain. But when the Romans left, the pagan religion came back, the, the, the ancient pagan Celtic religion came back. Mm. And particularly you find it on the Welsh marches, I had a house in Prestine, just the other side, on the Welsh side of the Welsh mm. marches. In fact, if you walked out of my house and crossed a bridge, quite literally, and I mean literally in the correct use of the word, 50 yards outside my house, it was England. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Prestine is a love, lovely border town, I suppose you'd call it, which has moved back and forth between Wales and England throughout its history. So I got very interested in that whole area. And there are a very large number of so-called holy wells, which were taken over by the Christians when Christianity then came back to Britain in the 6th, 7th, 7th, 8th century. It got mm. re-Christianized August, when Augustine came. And the Rome, what was called the Roman Church, was in... I suppose you could call it competition with the Celtic Church, the Celtic branch of Christianity. And then at the Council of Whitby, it was decided that the Roman Church should prevail. So I think, regrettably, Britain became Roman Christian. And that is, you know, when we talk about Roman Catholicism, it's because it's founded in Rome. But the Celtic Church was not founded in Rome. And mm. the Celtic Christians were much more sympathetic to the pagan religions. And the pagan Celtic religion worshipped water in the form of holy springs and holy wells and pools and stones and trees and groves. Now, the Roman Christians cut down the sacred trees and the sacred groves, but they couldn't do anything about the sacred wells and the sacred springs. So they converted them to Christianity. And that's what mm. I got really interested in. So you have a large number of, of, of sacred wells in that part of the world, which still are there, dedicated to, well, St. Winifred is a famous one, but the saint that I wrote about in the Gardener is a, a real saint called St. Milberga, who has a number of wells attributed to her. And in the book, I make up a sacred spring and a sacred pool 
dedicated mm. to St. Ursula, which my heroine, who's called Hassi, discovers. Um, it doesn't actually exist, but there are, in fact, a number of, of springs that are in, in, in life dedicated to St. Nolgeberga. And she was the prioress of a monastic order at Much Wenlock, which also features in the book. It's no longer extant, but there are the remains of a later Cluniac priory at Much Wenlock, which you can go and visit. And I have my character go and visit it in the book. So she, she gets interested in this St. Milberger. And through her interest in St. Milberger, she gets interested in the whole business of the pagan Celtic religion. And she discovers that the Roman Christians cut down the sacred trees. Mm. And they couldn't get rid of the sacred stones, but they removed the sacred element. But they, they couldn't get rid of these sacred springs. And it's through her discovery of the sacred, of a spring at the bottom of the very old garden, of the very old house that she moves into, that she discovers that the wood that she walks through to get to the village is in fact an ancient sacred wood that has not been cut down. And in this sacred wood, there is a, an ancient sacred pool, which is really an entrance. I mean, I, I don't spell it out. And no. you know, none of the reviews mentioned this element in the book. It's really oh, how interesting. Now I think they either didn't notice it because I mentioned it, I wanted to treat it very, very subtly and as it were, you know, out of the corner of your eye. And yes. Heavy in any way. Either they didn't notice it because they read the book so fast as people tend to do when they're reviewing, or they're <laughs> embarrassed by it because really it's the entrance to what's called the other world. And the other world is where the pagan other people, which is what the fairies, we now call fairies, which are nothing to do with people with gossamer wings, you know that? Yes, yes. yes. They're much more sinister and much more powerful and uh, much more like the ancient gods of Greece, really. And they have a transforming effect on the life of the principal character, Hassi. And there's a gap in the heart of the book, which... I'm sad to say many readers didn't understand and were rather irritated by it because they didn't understand why, what was happening in this last section of the book. But if you read the book carefully, you'll see what's happening. Yes. Something has happened to her in the wood, which is transformative in a very, very important way. So it's not just about someone who had a happy love affair moving out of London into the rural countryside. Yes, yeah. Stored by a garden, although that happens too. And it's not just about sibling rivalry, because the two women who inhabit the house are sisters, though that's in it too. And it's not about post-Brexit, though that's in it too. It's much more about the powerful effect of ancient history on the present, mm. on certain people, if they are of a certain imaginative type. And I'm of that type, and quite a lot of people are of that. I wrote a piece about fairies, actually, for Unheard, which is a online magazine which mm. has a reputation for being right-wing, but it isn't really right-wing, it's sort of free-thinking. It's a shame it has that reputation. I'm actually very left-wing, but anyway, I wrote a piece about fairies for it because none of the broadsheets would take a piece about fairies. And I got an enormous response. So quite a lot of people are willing to accept that these are beings that have a, a real place in the imagination. They don't... You don't have to actually believe in tangible fairies, although a lot of people do, to realise that like angels, you know, you don't have to believe in tangible angels, mm. to realise that they are 
important and time-honoured images for states of being that we don't really have a vocabulary for any longer, and that artists and poets and dramatists, I mean, not least Shakespeare in A Midsummer Night's Dream, have used for generations. Mm. You know, I mean, Homer writes about the gods, Sophocles writes about the gods, Shakespeare writes about the gods, Dante writes, you know, I mean, all through literature, you have people writing about these metaphysical states of being, which Mm. have been profoundly important to people because we don't have other ways of describing these kind of experiences. We have psychological terms, but they're not as rich and as generative and as um, appealing to the imagination, I think. Mm. So that's why I wanted to write about it. You know, I wanted her immersion in this ancient culture and ancient countryside, not just the process of gardening, although I think that too is, is, can be very regenerative. And a lot of people found it so in lockdown, and I did as I was writing the book. But the exposure to the ancient past and the mementos of the ancient past in the stones and the springs and the wells and indeed the ancient buildings, they affect us and they can affect us in a restorative and a a regenerative and enlarging way. And I think that's very important. This element's in all my books, you know, whether it's the ancient past of Venice or the ancient past of France or Dartmoor mm. or the Welsh marches. It, it's partly history and it's partly the spiritual and aesthetic aspects of that history that I want to write about. And I think mm. we're living in a time which is so materialistic that, that we're, people are thirsting for that sort of experience. Absolutely. And if I can give it to them through my books, I hope it will encourage them, you know, to to visit churches and cathedrals, to visit ancient buildings, to visit ancient parts of the countryside, to explore ancient woods and, you know, to to visit art galleries. Because all of these things are great freedoms and they are widely available to us. I mean, and you know, apart from having to pay to go to, to art galleries, which in our country, at least, they're free. It doesn't cost very much to get to the Welsh borders. It doesn't cost anything to, to explore, as I did, the Holy Springs on the Welsh marches. I think that really reflects on, you know, the important work of, you know, I suppose we might say in an academic sense, the sort of the humanities or, you know, writing yes. or, or, or art or things like that. Because, yes. you know, we, we do seem to live in a world where if you can't sort of pick it up and go, oh, here it is, mm. um, or it doesn't have some sort of obvious, I don't know, financial benefit to someone that, you know, it, it doesn't matter. But of course, with books, with uh, fiction or with theatre, art, you know, any of those, they can express and explore things that have importance sort of beyond that, if that makes sense. that If there's one thing I would like to say in this podcast, it's how furious I am at the disrespect that is currently being shown towards the humanities and the arts. The arts and the humanities are what give life meaning. They are what allow people to escape the confines of their lived lives, which are often very miserable and restricted and financially poor. The demise of libraries is one of the great tragedies Mm. of our age. It's disgusting. We were very poor because my dad had lost his job. 
But every Saturday morning, he took me to the library. And most of my knowledge of children's literature comes from a wonderful children's librarian who I celebrate in my book, The Librarian. Yes. I even gave my heroine her name, Miss Blackwell. Ah, okay. It's remarkable. She introduced me to Rosemary Sutcliffe. She introduced to me to what I regard as one of the great children's novels of all time, which is Philippa Pierce's Tom's Midnight Garden. Actually, she introduced me to Philippa Pierce. I bought Tom's Midnight Garden with a 10 shilling book token for my 10th birthday. Sorry, my ninth birthday. So without those children's libraries, I wouldn't be writing now. Mm. Midnight Garden is the book that changed my life. And most of what I write about, I acquired through the astonishing use of time that Philippa Pierce makes in that book. Mm. It is a remarkable book. It's up there with Alice Through the Looking Glass, for my money, with the Lewis Carroll and Alice Through the Looking Glass and Tom's Midnight Garden. And the works of Beatrix Potter are more important to me than any writer other than Shakespeare, because they so fed my child's imagination. I would never, ever have got a scholarship to St Paul's if I had not read those books. I would mm. never have got to Cambridge on a scholarship if I had not read those books. And if I hadn't had a children's library, I would never be a, a write, the writer I am today. So this disrespect of the arts and the, the removal of it from universities systems is, in my view, an outrage. And if anyone wants to join me and form an organisation to fight against this barbarism and philistinism, then please get in touch with me because it's disgraceful. It's how we learn to think about other people through mm. meeting them in books. It's how we meet, how children meet children of other cultures, of other religions, of other political persuasions, of other races, of other backgrounds, of other financial situations through meeting them through books. It's how we learn to think morally about other people and other situations. It's how we expand our understanding. It's how we can travel without polluting the atmosphere because we go in our imagination to different cultures. It's how we go back in time. I mean, all the history I learned through about Roman Britain, I learned through Rosemary Sutcliffe, not through any history teaching. Mm, mm. It's disgraceful that people are not being allowed to. It's what gives life meaning. Reading poetry is what is for me the most important thing probably that I do. I read novels, I read nonfiction all the time, all the time. But for me, reading poetry now, if I'd never been introduced to poetry by great teachers who had been taught to think properly about poetry and, and help me see how to make connections through poetic images, if I'd not read William Empson's Seven Types of Ambiguity and understood how ambiguity can work within an image or a metaphor. I wouldn't be the person I am. I wouldn't be such a reasonably good mother or, or I think a really rather good grandmother without it. So if there's one thing you keep please in this podcast is this, you know, pale of praise I want to say to all my teachers, to my librarian, my primary school teacher who got us to read Keats, you know, a state primary school teacher, we read Keats. Um, my wonderful English teachers, my marvellous Cambridge teachers, the wonderful people I taught in my adult education classes, all of those people have helped me be a better person, not, mm. not better, and, and a better writer. So, yes, well, 
end of outrage. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because you know completely. I mean, I you know I can think back to um, you know, to using the library um in my local town, which is lucky enough still to have theirs. We're very lucky here in Abingdon. We have a great local library that um you know. Yes, I know Abingdon. Uh, I I lived in Oxford. For a long term. Oh, right. Yes. So you're, yes, yeah, familiar and with I lived, yes. in, I lived in Oxfordshire as well. I mean, I brought up my children in Upper Hayford. So I know. Oh, okay. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I taught adult education classes in Abington, indeed. I had, I ran um, WA classes in Abington. So. Oh, fantastic. Yes. yes. Very, very well. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's, um, you know, we're very, we're very lucky to have that. And certainly for me, you know, there, there's, you know, many teachers, you know, English teachers and people that, you know, I can think of uh and be grateful for in terms of you know where where i am today because you know i i think uh for some that you know the humanities can be a great confidence uh booster at school initially i wasn't a very good student um but i think uh, for me it was through drama and through also having a very good english literature teacher that i found a sort of another way in if that makes sense to sort of thinking about the world and, and well, to study it's, it. it's the same you know my son Ben is very very dyslexic although we didn't really notice that because I didn't send my children to school um and his his elder child my granddaughter is well I think she's probably a bit dyslexic too I mean she's a terrible speller but she had two great teachers in her life one was in her primary school and one was happily in her comprehensive school and she also joined a theatre and she's quite a quite brilliant actress um doing mm. her a-levels at a six very good sixth form college but it was those two teachers the primary school teacher was clearly rather dyslexic himself but a very good english teacher and she had a brilliant english teacher um at her comprehensive school who just got her and yes all about the spelling didn't didn't care at all about the spinning. She was so she got so good through that. She actually got a scholarship to Beedales, although she decided not to go there because she didn't. She, she thought it was too elitist. So she, she's bravely gone off to a sixth form college, a rather mm -hmm. large sixth form college. But you know, that's through the understanding of a certain kind of teacher who has that kind of sensibility. Mm -hmm. And like Absolutely. you, she wouldn't have done anything without them mm -hmm. because they picked her out. They picked out that she really got books and she really got drama. It was drama and, and, and books that did it. It wasn't her ability. You know, she she writes really very, very well. But it's, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know what she's going to do in A-level because, you know, she, she still can't spell. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I mean, that's, you know, yes, I was, um, well, I still am, but, you know, I, I was, yeah, very dyslexic when I was younger. Well, I am too, you see. I didn't know yes. stuff about me. They just thought, why is she such a bad, I said, I was a very good reader. I think certain, my sons and my son and my granddaughter are the same, and I'm the same. We, there's no, nothing wrong with our reading, because I worked out, I see the shape of a word, but I don't see the component letters. Yes, absolutely. So if yeah, I see necessarily, I can see necessarily, because I see the shape. But, you know, ask me how many C's and S's in it. I can still freeze. I'm so glad you've said that because necessarily for me is always a tricky word. It's always a difficult word. Yeah. I know that sounds funny, but I feel, no, I mean. I am, I still, and without spell correct, you know. Yes. <laughs> and I still reverse letters. You know, I, I always write from as form. 
Mm. People still have to correct it for me when I'm writing articles and so on. I still don't see it. Yes. I am one of the lucky ones, and my son, and so is my granddaughter, and you are too, that we can read. But spelling, I, I still can't spell. Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> For me, uh, my partner is a very um, is very good with the sort of the, the mechanics of English, you know, in terms of the grammar, the spelling, and everything. And to me, it's almost um, that's almost an, a, a sort of a magic of its own. It, it's not a it's not a world I understand. Whereas, you know, I am a reader, and we have parents that come in, and they sometimes, you know, they say to us, "Oh, you know, our, our child's just been diagnosed with dyslexia, and they you know, they're quite concerned that they won't have." A good relationship with books and we always say you know you don't have to you know worry about that now because actually we find that you know firstly there are some great um you know uh publishers out. sorry or great audiobooks as well great audiobooks exactly and that um there's a, a real uh there's a lot of graphic novels for children now which are really wanted you know beautifully wonderful, told stories wonderful graphic yes novels. Uh, I you mean, know, the so, rise of the graphic novel for children is fabulous, isn't mm, it? Oh, absolutely, because it really is an it really is a um, an art form all of its own. I mean, I remember I went to I was looking around a bookshop in um, France, and I found out my partner studied French at university, and that's uh, his area. That's his area of study, and I had not really known that you know in France, kind of the graphic novel is a is I've a. Just come, I've just come back from there, and I've, I've oh, okay, it's wonderful. It's a really celebrated thing over there. And I, I think I would like to see more of that here because they're, you know, they're wonderful. You know, you're getting beautiful visual art as well as, you know, wonderful writing. I, what a brilliant, you know, combination. So it's wonderful to see that, particularly for children um, in uh, the UK, that that's, that's a, an expanding area. Also, my children, I gave them the comic book version of Shakespeare. Mm. And they loved it. I mean, I'd forgotten yes. that. They reminded me of it the other day because my my elder son's younger daughter loves graphic novels. So I sent her a lot of graphic novels. And I said to him, it's a shame we didn't have them in your day because they loved comics. My my elder, my younger son still collects comics. He's great. Comic. Oh, okay. Yes. We've just written a book, actually, about um, a gang of children who run a, an underground resistance comic in a, in a, in a dystopian society. And uh, Ben said, but, but we did. You gave us the comic book Shakespeare's, don't you remember? And I, I'd completely forgotten that they were rather good. They were very good. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A really wonderful, you know, way, yes, um, you know, to to come across Shakespeare, particularly on the page, if you're, if you're not seeing it um, on the stage. Sally, I'm really sorry. I, I think it's come to the end of our conversation. I, I could keep talking forever. I could. It's been really wonderful talking with you and um, hearing about your life, your inspirations and, and your writing. Of course, The Gardener is available from Mostly Books and from other good bookstores, as well as, um, of course, do support your local libraries as well and get it from there as well. Sally, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. It's been a huge pleasure to talk to you, Jack. Now I'll come and visit you if I may. Oh, please do. Please do. That would be a great honour. Thank you. I would love that. OK, goodbye and lovely to meet you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.